You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. There are new concerns about the accuracy of the 2020 census. The U.S. Census Bureau is cutting its schedule for data collection for the 2020 census a month short, stopping all its counting efforts at the end of September instead of the end of October. Researchers, academics, civil rights activists, and politicians are among those expressing concern that speeding up the count will produce an undercount, inaccurate data that will have lasting effects throughout the next decade. Joining me is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. I got a census questionnaire in the mail. I filled it in, sent it in. What else does the census have to do besides send out those questionnaires? So the census has to do two key things. They have one, like you said, a mail-out of the questionnaire, but also under federal statute, there's also a second period that's called the in-person verification, which is then where they have to canvas the addresses that they don't have answers for and try to get answers that are accountable for those addresses. As of Monday, 37% of U.S. households had not responded to the census questionnaire. Yet the U.S. Census Bureau says it's cutting its schedule for data collection. Do we know why? Well, the reason that was given is that they don't think they'd be able to finish the calculations that are required by the statutory deadline of December 31st, which is when they're supposed to have the full count by. But that seems a bit strange given that they knew that that statutory deadline existed when they first made this announcement about moving it to October 31st. And the other odd point is that it's not as if COVID has gotten better. COVID has gotten worse. And so whatever justification that was COVID-related to get to October 31st seems odd to now withdraw back to September 30th. Some people are saying, well, this means that there'll be an undercount of minorities as well as rural populations. It's a huge danger that now, especially because of covid and limitations in getting access to people and people who don't want to necessarily talk to anyone at the moment because they're being very, very careful, that all of the time that was now needed, that extra month, you certainly would have yielded a much larger response rate over the course of an additional month that you won't have now. Now it will be rushed, and the strategy of rushing it is almost certainly to lead to undercount. Many people are saying that this move to speed up the deadlines is another attempt by the Trump administration to politicize the census. Yeah, there is a belief that, and whether it's true or not, the time frames work out, which is that if potentially you had delayed the census, it would have gone into the presidency of a subsequent president, maybe Joe Biden, if he wins. And so by speeding it up a month, The idea is if somehow the president can prevail in his other litigation about not counting people without status here, that then he can make the final count and the final apportionment before the end of the first term of the presidency. An analysis shows that 10 states are trailing their 2010 response rates. Most of those are red states. Also, it's the poorest states that depend most on federal funding and have lower census response rates. So won't the administration be losing in that respect? I mean, that is certainly the practical implications of the policy. But the policies are almost always driven by the fact that the people who are most pushing the highest accurate number count is always the blue states. The blue states, New York, California, 
they're always the ones pushing the necessity and the urgency of getting the count accurately because they're the states who are always not getting their share of the pie. And so from their perspective, they feel like they have to do more than usual always in every census period to get counted. And so that perception seems to have lingered, even though the reality on the ground is what you report, which is that the red states are actually the ones trailing in the undercount at the moment. New York is one of those states that is trailing in the response rate. You know, we concentrate on the federal funding that comes to states based on the census count and also, of course, the uh, congressional seats that are allocated. But there are lots of other reasons to get a really representative count And that shows in that COVID databases are also using population data from the census. So there are other reasons. Oh, it's absolutely critical for all kinds of economic and demographic reasons to be able to assess the policy implications of many different formulaic grant programs and to determine, like you said, whether certain counties are handling pandemics better than other counties. All of that requires usage of the census data. And if you don't have that census data, you can't make proper assessments. There's even immigration issues, which is the area I work on, in the in the context of what's known as the EB-5 program, which talks about investing money in order to get a green card. That is 100% dependent on the census track and what that census track is saying about who is unemployed in that census track and who is the uh, what is the average rate of income in that census track. And so, from that perspective. It is, if we sat here and did a two-hour interview, I would not be able to cover all of the things that the census data is used for. I won't subject you to a two-hour interview. (laughs) So now there was a request to Congress to extend the deadline, which passed the House and is going nowhere in the Senate. Is there anything else that can be done to extend the deadline? So I am hearing about lawsuits that people want to file to try to get that deadline extended back to October. No such lawsuit has been filed, but they are imminent. And so those lawsuits will try to get the the deadline extended under the theory that they violate the Administrative Procedure Act. And in addition to those lawsuits, you have the idea that maybe even if you don't put it in as a standalone bill, it's something that is not so outrageous that it can be put into a COVID relief package. And that's the other option that's out there out on the table. Last week, President Trump issued an executive memorandum to exclude people in the country illegally. And there are multiple lawsuits. Where does that stand? So the furthest lawsuit along is the one that was filed in New York, that was filed by the New York Attorney General. There was two others, one filed by Common Cause and one filed in the Northern District of California by the state of California. But the one in New York, they had a hearing Tuesday. And at that hearing, the judge, Judge Furman, said he wanted to have briefing resolved by the end of August because of the fact that the census had been moved up to the end of September. And the biggest question that he has to decide right now is because the census statutes say that anything related to apportionment, any challenge related to apportionment has a three-judge panel as opposed to a one-judge panel. Is this a challenge related to apportionment, which is not exactly because we're not saying New York should have had two million versus California should have had 3 million. We're not saying that, 
but is it close enough to apportionment that it should require a three-judge panel? And if he says it does, then if the Department of Justice agrees so that they don't appeal that, then what that would mean is that that three-judge panel in New York would decide the merits of the case, and then it could go directly to the Supreme Court for an appeal. In testimony before Congress, the director of the census said that the Census Bureau is trying to come up with methodologies to implement President Trump's executive memo. What kind of methodologies could they come up with? Well, so there's two or three methodologies that the Department of Homeland Security has at its disposal. The first is they can come up with estimates with entry-exit data that they've been operating with recently, because we now know how many people exit the United States from Canada who enter, and we now know how many people exit the airports of the United States. And so what we don't exactly know is how many people would exit from the land border of Mexico, so we're going to have a bit of an overcount. But we'll be able to know for the last few years how many visa overstays there have been on average. And then the question is, well, how many people are here who unlawfully cross through the border And there, they're going to have to come up with some estimates and take from that estimate, how many years are we talking about per year? And what are we subtracting in terms of people who have been either removed or who have voluntarily left? And so that problem with that debate is that debate always comes down in the line of somewhere between 10 and 20 million. And depending on what number you choose, you're making a dramatic difference in the census. And so that's the problem. And I mean, we know what we know, but we also know what we don't know. And what we don't know is literally a 10 million person spread. And that just makes too much of a difference to leave it to guesswork. So, Lynn, let's say that the lawsuits fail and the Census Bureau completes its data collection. And you get this census result that is questionable, that scientists or sociologists question. Can anything be done once the census data is collected to change it? Well, so here's the complication. If you're challenging it based on the status issue, well, that would have been resolved in this lawsuit, so you couldn't do it on that. So you'd have to challenge it on how many human beings answered the census that you could verify have legal status and say that number is more than what the government gave us credit for. And so, yes, you could challenge that, and it would have that same three-judge panel. But the question is, then you, the challenger, would have the burden of proof to show that the government's calculation was wrong. And so that would require, I think, a set of courts that was interested in finding that decision. Thanks, Leon. That's Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland & Knight. You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso. Some infighting among conservatives could reshape the judicial selection process on the right, starting with that new list of potential Supreme Court nominees that President Trump has promised to release next month. A network at conservative groups such as the Heritage Foundation and the Federalist Society have helped President Trump on his mission to make the judiciary more conservative. Recently, that movement has come under fire from social conservatives who say it's mainly delivered business-friendly judges, while conservative voters care more about restricting abortion, immigration, and LGBTQ rights. Joining me is an authority on the courts, Carl Tobias, a professor at the University of Richmond Law School. 
Carl, let's start with Trump's mission to have a more conservative federal judiciary. Have the Republicans been ramping back up with judicial nominations? No, actually, the nominations and confirmations are moving rather slowly, I think in part because of the bad optics if they're confirming judges when they haven't done very much by way of a new stimulus package. And so Leader McConnell seems to be holding back, though today there will be a closure vote and a confirmation vote on Southern District nominee uh, for New York named Cronin. He has leapfrogged ahead of a number of others. For example, Eastern District uh, nominee Gujarati, who's been waiting 13 months for a confirmation vote. So there's some cherry-picking going on, um, but pretty limited. In this three-week period, which will end today, when the Senate's returned, uh, they've only confirmed three district judges. And so there are many waiting. Let's turn now to the Supreme Court. Explain why the president has promised to release a new list of potential Supreme Court nominees. Well, I think President Trump has decided to do that because he believes in part that his election the first time hinged on his Supreme Court list, which was about 20 possibilities that he promised he would pick from in filling vacancies. And then Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh were on the the list, uh, or that list that he compiled. And so he's promising a new list in September, which may include some of the people on the earlier list, but a number of his appellate uh, appointees are likely to appear on that list as well. Some social conservatives have criticized the network led by the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation that has been helping Trump choose judges and helping him with these lists. And they say that they've mainly delivered business-friendly judges, failing right-wing voters who care about restricting abortion, immigration, and LGBTQ rights. Do you see that as having happened? Well, to some extent, I think there's substantial disappointment expressed, I think, most clearly by Senator Hawley from Missouri uh, about those issues you were talking about, especially religious freedom, immigration, and other areas where the Supreme Court did not rule in a way that Trump or many of his supporters, like Hawley and others, wanted. Uh, And so they're trying to find a foolproof way to guarantee that, but that seems to elude them. It's very difficult, Um, even though I think there was a fair amount of vetting for the two newest justices uh, and many reassurances. The idea of going on the Supreme Court is that you will be impartial, that you can't prejudge uh, any particular issue. So it's elusive, I think, and uh, some people recognize that. Uh, but you're right, those criticisms are there. And so there is a lot of dispute about should they even compile this? And if they do, how do they vet the people to guarantee, as Hawley says, that they'll deliver the results that their proponents want? Uh, Hawley has said that he would vote to confirm Supreme Court justices only if they agree that Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided. So he would put the nominees in a position of having to say that 
a case that is now precedent was wrongly decided, won't that put the nominees in a terrible situation? <laughs> it well could. And, of course, they won't agree to anything of that sort. Uh, and so it does seem like Mission Impossible. And even some of uh, Holly's friends have criticized that. So we'll see how that all plays out. But apparently there's a lot of controversy about how to compile the list and how to vet people to guarantee the results that you want. And judges and nominees, to their credit, uh, are not going to commit beforehand. And so that's what we expect from federal judges. The Federalist Society and Heritage Foundation have been at this for a long time, and they have a network. I'm just wondering how President Trump intends to put a new list together. Well, I think he's going back to those people um, at the Federal Society and Heritage, and they're helping. Leonard Leo, I think, who's a legal uh, advisor on judges to the president, probably will have substantial input. Uh, And there are a number of conservative groups like uh, Judicial Confirmation Network and others who are having, I expect, input. And I would also expect uh, people like Holly and the members of the, of the Judiciary Committee, especially on the Republican side, uh, are likely to want to have input and may well have input. And so I don't think there'll be any lack of people willing to help or uh, names to be floated. But I think also they'll go back to the core list from 2016, 2017, uh, and look at Trump's appointees, all 53 of them perhaps, to the appellate bench. Those seem like the most likely choices. There are a couple of names that keep on resurfacing. And one is Naomi Rao, who was a very controversial appointee to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And she has been a really reliable vote for Trump, whether it's subpoenas for his financial records or the prosecution of Michael Flynn. Is she trying out for the Supreme Court? Well, as we know and have said before, the D.C. Circuit is the second most important court in the country. And it's been a springboard for many to join the Supreme Court. Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Thomas, Justice Ginsburg, the late Justice Scalia, all served on that court. And so it shouldn't be surprising, and it gets exactly those kinds of controversial, high-profile cases that Judge Rao has been involved in. The cases are assigned randomly, but, you know, it's a small court. There are 11 judges, and so she seemed to draw an inordinate number of those high-profile cases that involve the president. And she has generally come down on the side of the president in writing opinions or dissent, so people are looking at her closely. She has very much defended executive power and Trump deregulatory initiatives. What issues do conservatives have with Rao? Well, I think that the D.C. Circuit docket hasn't served up very many of the cases that social conservatives are concerned about involving, for example, abortion, immigration, uh, and those types of issues, religious freedom. Those rarely come to the D.C. Circuit because it primarily uh, looks at, and a majority of its cases are appeals of administrative agency decisions, regulatory decisions, typically. Uh, and she has much expertise in those areas. And so I think that it's less clear how she might decide the issues that trouble uh, Ollie and others, the social conservatives. How will she decide on religious freedom at the Supreme Court or 
abortion or immigration. And she doesn't have much of a track record there. There's not much of a paper trail. What about Judge Amy Coney Barrett, who is a federal appeals court judge in Chicago? Well, she's on the Seventh Circuit, and I think the feeling among conservatives is she would be uh, a sure bet on those kinds of issues. Um, and they can look at her writing when she was a law professor and look at her opinion on the Seventh Circuit, though she hasn't signed off on very many, but I think they feel she's a much safer vote for their views in terms of abortion, religious freedom, uh, perhaps immigration, uh, and maybe some other uh, social conservative kinds of issues. And so uh, there is a paper trail there, and I think they have a higher comfort level with her. I understand that conservatives were very upset by the rulings of the Supreme Court this term on abortion, immigration, and LGBTQ rights. But if you look at it, their last nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, consistently voted with the conservatives on the court on those issues. So it seems as if they did do their job, their so-called job, in picking him. I think that's right. Uh, More so than Justice Gorsuch, who seems to be somewhat more independent. And of course, he did joined the majority and wrote the opinion in the LGBTQ case. Uh, and so there is some difference, it seems like, between the two of them, at least this term. And then Chief Justice Roberts has uh, tended to uh, be more concerned about institutional issues uh, and the court's uh, reputation and credibility in a number of those cases as well. And he has often joined uh, with the Democratic appointees uh, on many of the issues that are troubling to some social conservatives. But not so, on abortion. Um, on abortion, he remained with the conservatives. Why I question all this, you know, looking and, and vetting, because it seems to me that the most reliable conservative votes are Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito who were picked well before this process. Yeah, that's true. Um, but maybe that just points out it's very difficult to predict exactly how people will resolve cases. So I think um, Democrats on the Judiciary Committee and in the Senate were concerned that both of those justices uh, might be quite conservative, and they have proved to be. And so it's not always easy to do, to predict you know, where how a justice will decide, especially one who's open-minded and decides each case on the law and the facts. The, the Supreme Court is getting the highest approval ratings in a decade with widespread support for how the justices are doing their job across the ideological spectrum, according to a new Gallup poll released Wednesday. What do you make of that? Well, I guess the American people like a court that decides the law the cases on the law and the facts. That doesn't seem so partisan or ideologically divided, though we'll see. Um, Though this term, I think, people who favor more moderate decisions and less partisanship were relieved by some of the decisions. Um, But it really depends on what happens in the longer term. So we'll have to just see 
how that all plays out in subsequent terms uh, and whether they're new justices and who wins the election in November. Do you think that the Supreme Court is going to be a real issue in the upcoming election? Well, I think it's likely because President Trump, I think, has promised that he would make it an issue. And it's one of his great success stories. And maybe the most important one is his appointees to the Supreme Court and certainly to the federal appeals court, who will be serving for decades after he's left the White House. Thanks, Carl. That's Professor Carl Tobias of the University of Richmond Law School. A bail hearing by Zoom for the 17-year-old accused of hacking some of the world's highest-profile Twitter accounts offered some surprises about the teenager's past brushes with the law, and then the hearing about the hacker was hacked itself, and raunchy images were shown, bringing the hearing to an abrupt close. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Christopher Dolmesh. So, Chris, this was a bail hearing for the 17-year-old, Grandma Ivan Clark, who was charged with hacking into the accounts of notable business people, celebrities, and politicians, including former President Barack Obama, Amazon Chief Executive Jeff Bezos, and Tesla CEO Elon Musk. Tell us what happened at his bail hearing. So it was your pretty typical Zoom court hearing. It took a little while to get going. There were a lot of different people on the line, obviously, given the high-profile nature of the case. And eventually, they got started. And the argument that the lawyer was making is that his bail, which is $725,000, is way disproportionate to the uh, alleged loss in the case, which is about $117,000. He had made his arguments. The prosecutor had argued against that, saying that they'd only begun to examine the, you know, the depth of his conduct. And it was nearing the end of the hearing, um, and it seemed like the judge was about to make a ruling when some pretty graphic images came on the screen. I mean, we've had, you know, obviously, as the pandemic's gone on, we've had a lot of interruptions on Zoom calls and teleconferences between dogs barking and babies and things like that. But uh, this is definitely a first for me in terms of graphic content. Just remind us what the charges are against him and what he's accused of doing. So the charges are he's got about 30 charges against him, including computer fraud, uh, communications fraud, uh, major organized fraud. And he's accused of kind of organizing this, this hack on, you know, more than 30 different accounts, Elon Musk, Barack Obama among them. And, you know, basically sending out messages on those accounts that ask for Bitcoin donations. And that's the $117,000 that they're alleged is the loss in the case is that people responded to those tweets by sending Bitcoin to him. Um, We don't know a whole lot about um, the evidence right now um, and what's going on. It's very early in the case, um, and mostly uh, the arguments so far have been about uh, bail and uh, that sort of thing. So we're still waiting to hear a lot of details about what prosecutors are alleging. During the bail hearing, it was revealed that his residence was searched a year before the hack? Yeah, so last August, um, there was a search warrant served at his residence. They seized about $15,000 in cash, uh, his phones, some computer hardware, and they froze a BitMEX account uh, that contained, not sure exactly how many Bitcoin were in there, but probably about on the par of 400, something like that. We're not entirely clear uh, what the investigation uh, was the result of. His lawyers called it a joint investigation between the Santa Clara, California District Attorney's Office 
and the Hillsborough County um, State's Attorney in Florida. But the Florida authorities say they were only there to help serve the search warrant. Regardless, the investigation resulted in an agreement between Clark and the Florida and California authorities in which he would surrender 100 Bitcoin to them and they would return the rest of his property and he admitted no wrongdoing and he wasn't prosecuted. We don't know really what the investigation is, but they've said in court papers that it was into a SIM swap scheme where, you know, hackers kind of take over a mobile phone in order to uh, access personal information. And the authorities in Florida said that it involved thefts from California residents of about a million dollars. The New York Times has linked Clark to a similar scheme where a Seattle tech entrepreneur was the subject of a SIM swap hack. During the hearing, his lawyers said that the 100 bitcoins Clark agreed to forfeit represented about 25% of the cryptocurrency in Clark's account. So when you do the math, does that mean he has about $3.6 million in his account? And how did this 17-year-old get that money? So he said before that this was all these were all bitcoins that he'd made trading. And his lawyer did say during the bail hearing that he started with 10 bitcoin and he was just a cryptocurrency trader and he made all the money through trading. So as far as we know, if you do the math, he probably has about 400 bitcoin. You know, it's a pretty inherent security flaw, you know, for any tech company is that, you know, you have vast armies of people you know, young people, teens who have grown up with technology, who have you know, spent years and years honing their skills, maybe operating in bedrooms, you know, um, what have you. And they are just as able to, you know, conduct a sophisticated hack on a big company like Twitter as, you know, maybe a professionally trained team of hackers who are paid and recruited. It's definitely something they need to worry about. So the judge left the bail at $725,000? Correct, but eliminated the, the requirement that he prove, prove where the bail money came from. His lawyer successfully argued that um, because the authorities in California and Florida had returned those proceeds to him they, and he wasn't prosecuted and admitted no wrongdoing, that they couldn't argue that they were illegally obtained. Thanks, Chris. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Christopher Dolmesh. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio.